And we find that reframing really helps leaders to start to understand that it's okay to have bias, it's okay to talk about bias, and then we can make change. 100%. And in the most basic, simplest form, it's a survival technique, Mm. right? That we've been evolved. Yes. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to digest all the information that we have to digest. It's physically impossible. There's, There's so many senses that we have. You know, auditory, you've got visual. The only way to process all of that is our brain has to make these mental shortcuts. Otherwise, it will take us a long, long time to make any decision at all. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. This episode, we have the pleasure of being joined in conversation by Reham Sati. Reham is the CEO and founder of MeVitae, a UK-based organization who you will hear about very shortly at the top of the episode. We deep dive on bias today. We talk about what bias is, um, what are some common misconceptions about bias, what are the implications of bias for individuals, for organizations, for society. We talk about algorithmic bias and we touch on what you and what your organization might do to mitigate potentially harmful bias. This was a fascinating conversation. We loved talking to Reham and we think you'll enjoy listening too. So without further ado, we bring you Reham Sati. Welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Reham Sati. Uh, Reham, hello. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this discussion and debate. (laughs) Likewise. So um, for you, the listener, Reham is CEO and co-founder of MeVitae. Um, MeVitae are a really interesting organization, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about that in the uh, the conversation as it unfolds. But we'll open the the discussion with our our usual question. So Reham, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you come to be doing the work you're doing? Yeah, no, of course. So I, my name is Riham Sati. I'm one of the co-founders of MeVitae. We were founded in, in 2014, based in the UK. We've got clients all over, all over the world. And really, our aim is to use technology to mitigate biases. And that's a fully loaded comment there, but I'm sure we'll dissect. And the whole story of how we arrived at MeVitae was pure luck, serendipity, I should probably Um it was at the time of university, in fact. Uh, myself and my co-founder, uh, Vivek, we were both studying at, at Oxford. Um, I was studying uh, neuroscience, so doing a PhD at the time. Uh, and he was doing his master's in computer science and wanted to get a, a job at this big tech firm. I won't name the names, so I'll just say that. Um, and I said to him, you know, the market is really competitive. How are you going to differentiate yourself? From, from, the, from the world and from the comp- competitors to get a job as a computer scientist. So we thought, let's try and find a unique way to try and grab recruiters and hiring managers' attention. So we built this kind of app ages ago. This is probably like 2012, 2013. I'm really showing my age here. Um, and um, we uploaded this app with like Vivek CV on the, on the app store and initially got rejected and we opened it up to the public so where they can put their own details uh, on there. It was a bit like a LinkedIn in your pocket, right? Put your details in, you can walk around with your CV. And then before we knew it, it had like 50,000 downloads in like a couple of weeks and it was climbing a hundred every day. Before we knew it, we were kind of like one of the top apps on the store. 
So we started, I don't know how we did it. I was still focusing on my research at the time. It was, like I said, pure luck, serendipity. Um, and then we started looking at the world of HR and just how fragmented it really is. Um, there's recruitment, you know, there's HR agencies, there's candidates, there's employers. And then there's the whole concept of fairness of how do you make sure everyone gets an equal chance and realize that there was such a fundamental challenge and it comes down to human decision making. So we put a task that we, we set upon ourselves to try and solve that problem. How do you mitigate these biases? And at the, I, I did the task of getting the, that friend a, a job. He's now the co-founder. So I did that bit. So now the next task is how do you create fairness in the workplace? I love that. And such a, an interesting story. And the fact you were thinking about bias before it was probably part of popular culture and language and organizations had such a huge focus on it. So I, I love that you, you started out that journey very early on. I guess given we're talking so much about bias today, it's probably a logical place to start. Let's unpack that a bit. When you talk about bias, how do, how do you articulate it? What do you mean when you talk about bias? That's a really good question. And it's a, it's a fully loaded question as well, because I was looking earlier, I guess, the, the definition, the Google definition of, of biases, and there's, there's different versions. And one of them I found was it's the inclination or prejudice for or against one person or a group, especially in a way considered to be unfair. That was one definition. And then there was another definition that says implied or unreasoned or unfair distortion of judgment in favor or against the person or thing. But I feel like that's a, even that's very complicated. So really in, in our eyes, bias uh, manifests in the sense that it comes from, I guess, the human brain, really. Uh, every, and, I, and this is talking from a kind of a neurological perspective, uh, we make hundreds of times of decisions every day and we have to process lots and lots of information um and our brains can't take all of that, that that information in so we have to i guess bucket or group things and make decisions based on assumptions and that's the umbrella term of, of bias making these kind of decisions that are slightly distorted um and there are conscious biases and there's there's unconscious biases but they all kind of come under the umbrella term of cognitive biases. Um, and most people think that, you know, biases is just one thing. But in fact, there are over 150 types of biases that exist in the human brain. There's confirmation biases, halo effect biases. There's a, there's a whole list that's really, really fascinating. And that's just the world of cognitive biases. And then you've got algorithmic biases that comes from, again, the human decisions that we make, but also the data that we use, the decisions machines make. And even that's kind of another big, fully loaded term. And cognitive slash unconscious biases, as well as algorithmic biases, form the umbrella term of bias. There's so much to dive into there. And we, we love this topic of, obviously, in the, the, you know, the workshops we run for things like inclusive leadership and it's really a foundational concept in DEI, and and I, I'd love to get your perspective on this because when we when we talk about bias to groups of uh, groups of people, what often comes up are questions based on some misconceptions around the term. Again, it's a it's a it's a term that gets used out there in the popular culture, but I don't think it's very well understood. So uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from, from your perspective, what, what misconceptions around bias do you see? What are some common misunderstandings around the term? 
and, and we'll get onto algorithmic bias in a second because I think that's a that's a rabbit that's definitely another rabbit hole we want to we want to dive in. Yeah, that is a rabbit hole. There's a lot of misconceptions around that. <laughs> oh, where do I begin? Okay, I I think there's a few misconceptions that float around. The first one is that there is one type of bias, and I've and I've alluded to there. In fact, there are lots and lots of them. Uh, over 150 types. And they manifest in different ways and they change over time. You know, one's bias 10 years ago is not necessarily the same bias that they have now. So it's an ever-evolving concept. Uh, another misconception people have is that you can remove biases. There's this magic ones that we have and everything can be bias-free and we can remove biases. Misconception. Neurologically, because of the data that we process and the information we process, you can never, ever, ever remove biases. What you can try and do is mitigate those biases or try and postpone them for as long as possible. And there's lots of methods people do, you know, bias training. There are things that, you know, anonymized hiring in the world of HR. There are uh, different having panel interviews when you're recruiting, lots of different techniques. But a big misconception is that you can. You know, there's a magic wand you can remove biases. Um, another misconception is that we all know what our biases are. You know, I've had lots and lots of conversations. I know what my bias is. And I'm like, that's conscious. That's, you know, you've got those. There's, there, and those are the conscious biases. The trickier thing to solve is the unconscious ones. The ones you don't know you have. Um, and bringing those to the surface. And that's very, very tricky to solve. And there's lots of ways to try and tackle that, you know, educating, talking to people, having diverse network that you can collaborate with, or there's the, the implicit association test that you can take with, with Harvard. I think that was built in the 1990s. Um, but biases are, you know, there are conscious and there's, there's unconscious ones. Uh, and that's definitely a big misconception that I, that I see. And then there's like, there's a whole world of misconceptions about algorithmic biases. But I'm sure we said we're going to get into those ones. I think one I'd just love to layer on that we see and that we find very useful when we work with organizations and, and leaders is that biases aren't always bad. So I love how you talked about bias from a sort of neuroscience perspective and the fact that it is to be human is to have to have bias. And what we see with people is that bias, when we ask, quite often we start a workshop and we say, what words come to mind when you think of bias? And people say judgment, harassment, racism, sexism, and all of this negativity. And, and the challenge with that, of course, is that none of us are going to accept we have bias when we think that bias are only these bad things. So if we can't accept we have bias, we can't mitigate it. So one of the things that we work with leaders is about understanding that neuroscience that you started to talk about and understanding that actually sometimes bias can be really helpful. So we use the really simple example of, I have a bias that snakes are bad. Therefore, I don't run up and touch a snake. That's really helpful. And actually, we get leaders to evaluate their bias and, and sometimes, so we talk about things like expediency bias, which is a preference towards speed in the workplace and getting things done quickly. And actually, sometimes that can be really useful. If there is something that needs to be turned around very quickly, um, it can be really useful. There's obviously challenges around it with 
how many people are included, etc. But if you're making a conscious choice that in that moment that bias is helpful for me, then then they can be they can be beneficial. So it's about being aware of them so we can mitigate them when we need to. And we find that reframing really helps leaders to start to understand that it's okay to have bias, it's okay to talk about bias, and then we can make change. Hundred percent. And in the most basic, simplest form, it's a survival technique, mm. right? That we've been evolved. Yes. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be able to digest all the information that we have to digest. It's physically impossible. There's, there's so many senses that we have. You know, auditory, you've got visual. The only way to process all of that is our brain has to make these mental shortcuts. Otherwise, it will take us a long, long time to make any decision at all. And so there's a reason for it. And that becomes really, really powerful. The, the tricky thing is, is when you start making really quick, quick decisions, right? When you're, for example, screening applicants really, really quickly, our emotional responses take over. Um, and we end up putting thing, people into buckets or groups or making assumptions. And that's when it becomes trickier. But ever, for 100%, from an evolutionary perspective, we needed those bias. For example, snakes, snakes are bad, right? Or, you know, I'm not a fan of, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, I don't like spiders either. So I'm not going to run towards a spider. So it, it definitely does help. And there's a really good book um, called Sapiens. Mm. Um, you, you might have heard of it. It's a very, very popular book. You know, million dollar, million um, bestseller book out there and by um, Harari. And explains from an evolutionary perspective how our brains have evolved over time, that fight or flight response and how our brains have changed to be able to make efficient, rational, to some degree, decisions. Um, so there's definitely, a, there's always a pro and a con. Um, so 100% agree with you on that one, Kerry. And uh, it reminds me of um, uh, it reminds me of the, the the sort of work that Robert Keegan did on immunity to change and the hidden competing commitments and 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 to sort of layer on it's a survival mechanism. There's a there's a there's a positive intent behind all of these biases that, that we we. We we developed these ways of looking at the world because they they help us navigate it in a way that that helps us feel safe or helps us um uh, you know helps us make you know what we think good decisions for for ourselves and who we perceive as you know our, our, our tribe etc. Um, you know, for, for so you know, we might have a um, we might have an explicit commitment to seek a diversity of perspectives, right? We we go, ah, oh, you know, I like to t I like to get a range of range of viewpoints on any particular topic, but you end up not quite doing that, right? You end up going to the same people, and 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 that that's that's going against your stated commitment to to get a range of perspectives. The hidden competing commitment there is to uh, to keep your ego intact because you know you're you're, yes. you're you're being told that you're right and you're smart and you've got good ideas, um, and and also yep. to to feel safe as well to to not have your 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 sense of correctness challenged. Um, so 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 I, I like the idea of thinking of it in these sort of hidden competing commitments, and it can be a way of of kind of surfacing these for some people. Um, I also wanted to point out just just join up two threads together that you mentioned uh, as well, Reham. You mentioned the implicit association test. Now, <clears throat> I know some people have some pushback against the IAT, and and oh, and, there's, and there's some, a big debate exactly. But one of the um, one of the one of the points people use to push back against it is. Um, depending on say the time of day you you take the test um uh, like whether you've eaten or not um you know whether you've slept well what kind of stimulus you've been you've been exposed to so if you're exposed to you know um uh, kind of 
positive uh, positive views of, of a particular group because I know the IT could, can do race, it can do gender. But if you if you're exposed to sort of positive uh, positive stereotypes of a particular group, that that impacts your IAT. People use that as a way to dismiss and discount the IAT. Actually, what it points to is that that biases are malleable and can change over time depending on the situation right so so we're seeing we're seeing like the fact that just the stimulus you're exposed to the fact that you've had lunch or not and you're hangry or tired like impacts this this subconscious view of 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 people and things so i just wanted to thread those two i agree you know it's not by any standard like the the, the gold standard of, of detecting biases um but it, it creates a sense of awareness. Uh, it opens up the conversation that we all need to be having yeah. right now, and it's an important topic. Uh, and you're right; these these biases will change, they'll adapt, you know. And that's something that we really need to be aware of, um, because we are, you know, over time we change, we adapt. We're not who I was yesterday and who I am today has changed. So therefore, my perceptions, my ideas, my concepts. Uh, my opinions will evolve, and therefore, so will biases. Um, and that's that's why we've. But it does open that conversation of going, okay, where's the starting point? Why do we have this discussion openly, frankly, and try and find ways to tackle it because it's it's fundamental. I think that's a perfect point for me to ask my next question. If you like what you've heard so far in the podcast and are looking for new ways to bring diversity, equity and inclusion to life in your organisation, why not reach out for a chat? At Leaders for Good, we offer a range of solutions from diversity, equity, inclusion strategy sprints through to inclusive leadership workshops to DEI training for your whole organisation. So if that sounds good, drop us an email at hello at leadersforgood.org. We've kind of talked about it, but not explicitly. Why Why is it important for organisations and individuals to consider bias? Like, why does oh, this matter? That's a really good question, in fact. And I think there's different um, ways we can tackle that, that question. There's one of the, I guess, relating to the diversity, equity and inclusion space, one of the main contributing factors to the lack of diversity um, is comes down to biases whether they're good or bad, like we debated, but it does come down to that. And there's lots and lots of research and studies out there that I won't list all of them that goes into the benefits of what, why you need to have a diverse and inclusive team. There's reports by McKinsey, there's reports by PCG, right? uh, Intel, that explains the importance of having a diverse and inclusive team from you know, kind of from a financial performance perspective, from a, a, a different perspective of thinking, from an innovation perspective. It's not just the right thing to do, but it's a competitive advantage. Diverse teams succeed and they do better. Um, and that's a way to make sure you've got, uh, so having a diverse and inclusion team, make sure that your organization, which is, on the back of having lots of people and having diverse teams strive, it makes you ahead of the game. Um, and that's a fundamental um, thing for organizations. Organizations always want the top talent, right? Um, and it's such a competitive space at the moment. And I think it will always be like that. 
But it's a way to make sure that organizations are innovative, are profitable, um, are doing the right thing, um, and making sure they have the right people, the right culture in order to do that. And tons of studies to back that up. Um, and it's just, we need to have these conversations time and time again. Because, and it doesn't just have to be at, you know, at kind of the most superficial level. It needs to be uh, across the board. You know, everything from apprenticeships to graduates to internships, all the way to the boardrooms. We all need, to, it needs to be a foundational thing, not a, an add-on or a nice to have. It is a structural foundational thing. Um, and that's how companies can thrive and do better to be able to compete for the, the top talent. At the end of the day, companies are based on people uh, and people is what, what makes organizations grow. You touched on a few obviously different points there and, and to kind of sum up how we talk about and think about the why behind diversity, equity and inclusion. But I, th I think this plays into this, that we could talk to bias directly with this as well. But we think about it and you, you point into this, uh, Reham, the responsibility that, you know, if we're, if, if we're being <clears throat> driven, if we don't have checks and balances and systems and processes and cultures in place that, that, that kind of challenge our unconscious bias, we, we risk doing harm to individuals. And, and, and that's something obviously we want to, we want to mitigate. So, um, it, it's the, it's the responsibility the opportunity you, you talk to a lot there in terms of in terms of creativity innovation um, etc and, and then the then the risk from an organizational perspective that the legal the reputational the financial risk of, of getting this wrong is is pretty profound um i just wanted to build on that from an individual perspective as well from 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 our perspective it's really a superpower to to develop you know the the ability to take and hold multiple perspectives to to have the humility to not think that you are right going into any any situation with with your opinions it is the is just the foundation of a of a of a of, of well-rounded thinking and 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 if if leaders step into the practice of 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 trying to look for recognize and 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 mitigate bias that actually leads to just a far more effective individual as a as a, as a leader as a contributor as a as just a, a human being as well so um if, if if all those things didn't sell you from an organizational perspective just just the fact it is a superpower that you can practice and develop is is i think i think worth noting oh i love that i think that's absolutely spot on because it's so easy for us to think about Diverse equity inclusion from a kind of, I guess, a protected characteristic viewpoint, mm. right? You know, I need more women in the board, or uh, you know, I need someone from underrepresented groups. But in fact, it's beyond that. It's that diversity of thinking, of thought as well included. So completely spot on there, Phil. And I think we often get organizations coming to us, especially around bias as a really remedial yes. thing. So it's like, we need unconscious oh. bias training. Our teams are biased. Like we have to yes. fix this. And that is never going to be motivating no. or inspiring. And I think probably all of us have been in that horrendous unconscious bias training where you walk out feeling yeah. shamed without any action yeah. to take. And we really, from our perspective, this is such yes. exciting work. You get to learn more about yourself mm. and each other. So we really feel flip it on its head and take such a positive approach to, yeah. to how we train it and how we help leaders think about it. Because as Phil said, it can be transformative. It yeah. can be a superpower. Like there's so much real um, difference that you can make when you approach it from the right mindset. You can uncover, you know, new skills that you may not have known you've had, right? Or hobbies 
that you you've just it, it really does help from a, a personal development perspective uh, and that is like you said like a superpower right if you can everyone's always trying to learn new things about themselves uh, and so why not unlock another layer to that um and it spills over to teams as well a you're role modeling and, and b you're opening doors you know starting a conversation with like hey i'm going to share my view but this is undoubtedly driven by a bunch of my biases and this is just my perspective so i'm I'm opening the door here for you to for you to challenge for you to for you to for you to chip in because there's something i'm probably not seeing here you can still share it you can still share a perspective you can still be a subject matter expert but you're doing so in a way that that that, again fosters fosters inclusivity fosters uh fosters Mm -hmm. contribution fosters challenge um and and the 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 knock-on effect is all of those all of those good things in terms of engagement inclusion innovation etc agreed and so many organizations talk about culture right and making sure they have the right culture it's very important and this fits perfectly into that. You know, it's making sure that everyone has the opportunity to thrive uh, and be the best that they can be, but also spurring on their teammates, right? Um, and at the end of it, an organization will grow and actually be, you know, ahead of the game when it comes down to, to you know, it comes down to innovation, the profitability, those those kind of metrics that, organizations are looking for the, on the board level it all comes down from a ground up uh perspective mm. i'm going to ask the question now just because i'm so i'm so keen to get on to it um the the topic of algorithm okay. the, the, the topic of algorithmic bias so so and 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 obviously at me this is this is one of your sweet spots in terms of in terms of what you do as a as an organization so i'm, I'm really really keen to get your your viewpoints here how should we be thinking about algorithmic bias? What what is it, and 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 why why might we be concerned uh, about bias creeping into algorithms? Where do I begin? Uh, algorithmic biases, I think, is one of the biggest guess threats that we have today. Um, you know, we talk about, I guess, climate change, and we talk about, you know, the the impact of having a diverse and inclusive team. Algorithmic biases is one of those other key threads uh, because it has implications not now, but tomorrow and the day after and the future. Because algorithmic biases are actually algorithms uh, that are skewed. Uh, They have biases that are due to multiple reasons. Uh, It comes down to biases that we have as as humans that are projected into these, these algorithms. It could be within data, right, that we're analyzing. It could even be the algorithms that we build or design. You know, people talk about machine learning and we don't know what's, it's like a black box. There's an input and an output. We don't know what's happening in between. And uh, even that skews things. Um, But then also people making decisions on the back of algorithms, right? Um, That also sways things. And that has implications in every decision that we make in every single possible sector, in the world of HR, in healthcare, in insurance. And if we don't try and rectify this now, then we're just going to be kind of making the situation a lot worse. And that's why, you know, organizations are throwing millions and millions of pounds into this challenge, because it's 
it's a structural challenge from the very, very beginning. And it's very, very convoluted. It's a very tricky problem to solve because you've got the data, you've got people, and you've got decisions on the back of that. And that's like a, a, a vicious cycle that we need to somehow try and break. Again, you'll never, ever be able to remove all the algorithmic biases because it's, you know, comes down to people at the same time. But if we can try and mitigate that, then we can make, and I'll put kind of quotations, fairer decisions um, that are important. And we've seen so many examples of algorithms going awry, right? A lot of, in the world of HR, people talk about the Amazon situation, right? How they had their algorithms um, a couple of years ago that they use their past hiring data for like the past decade or so. And machines, they use the machines to kind of determine who is best fit for a role. Um, and it ended up picking um, a certain type of, of candidates. In this case, it was, it was more men. Can it, so it's, the system was kind of making the situation worse, which I think they've, they've stopped the, that, that technology now. But there's so many use cases in facial recognition, um, in the criminal justice um, cases. There's lots of um, situations that have arisen as a result of algorithmic biases. And so for us, it's one of the most crucial things that we try and mitigate it. We're not just trying to mitigate cognitive biases, but we're also trying to mitigate algorithmic biases um, for the future. So that when machines are making decisions, they're as, as kind of fair as, as possible um, and making sure that everyone is given a, a, a kind of a, a fair chance as possible. But there's lots of things that need to happen to make sure that we're mitigating that. Uh, we'll probably need hours and hours of discussion, but <laughs> I'll leave that there. Um, well, I'm actually going to ask you to expand on it a little more, if you don't mind, because obviously the work you do at Avita is specifically within the hiring process. So I'd love you to bring that to life in terms of yeah the work you do as an organisation and how that links through to the to the hiring process. How you see, obviously, use the Amazon example there, but whether there's any other examples and, and yeah you can bring it to life through some of the the work that Mavita is doing so for us uh one of the i guess the our missions is like i said to, to mitigate that cognitive and algorithmic biases and we made a, a very conscious decision very early on to make sure that we any technology that we build um tries to achieve that uh one way or another um and that for us we specifically focus on the guess the talent acquisition process um before the interview process and there's lots of uh, i guess technologies out there or silo tools that you can use to try and mitigate biases but let's take a, a, a specific example let's say screening applicants uh there's lots of tools and algorithms out there to try and screen applications uh they'll might use kind of keyword matching or semantics to buy, be able to try and identify top talent um, and that's all fair and well, but when you've got machines that are, you know, looking and reading text and even the type of words people use will impact whether you get screened or not, right? Um, or when you've got an algorithm that's taking your past hiring data and making decisions on that, what kind of people have you hired in the past and doing that over and over again, times 10, you're going to end up we're getting the same pool of applicants you've had before. And that's, you know, it goes against what we we're just talking about building a diverse and inclusive team. So that cycle needs to be broken. 
And for us, it comes down to a series of things. We wanted to make sure our algorithms uh, will try to mitigate that. And that worked in a few ways. Making sure that uh, when our algorithms are built, the data that we use is representative of the, the sector of the space. Um, a lot of data is skewed. We'll use, or it's incomplete. And that's always going to be the case, but it can add a lot of noise, really. So we're very, very selective in terms of the data that we use um, in our own algorithms to make decisions, um, just to make sure that we're giving uh, an equal representation as much as possible on that. Or using um, a diverse, you know, we've got a really diverse team at MeVitae, people from different continents, from different academic backgrounds. Um, we've got to practice what we preach. We'd be very, very hypocritical <laughs> if we didn't. Um, so having our own teams, um, making sure that we've got different viewpoints when building our algorithms. And one of the interesting things is we've reached out to the ICO, so the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, they're also trying to use, tech, you know, audit or build frameworks in mitigating our algorithmic biases. And we asked them to, to audit our technology and how are we, how is MeVitae uh, doing in terms of mitigating algorithmic biases? And we did that audit uh, late last year, in fact, and it's, you can check it out on our website. And we were ranked strongly on, there's over 10 factors that um, organizations should look into to try and mitigate biases. Uh, transparency. So how do machines come up with the decisions that they do? It's not just a black box. How do you, um, and making sure that we are transparent in saying, okay, the machine came up with this decision because it's XYZ. Um, Making sure that um, from a, a, a kind of a data representation, making sure it's as, as wide and as, uh, as possible. Uh, making sure from a, a, a kind of a, a, an individual's right, like who owns the data, whose rights are, do they belong to. A statistical accuracy, how accurate is our machines? And we've built um, what we call statistical fairness tests. So we will only release algorithms if they pass these tests. Um, and that's part of our audits that we do regularly. So there's lots of things that we're doing in the background. And I think it's really important to make sure that what we're putting out there um, is is you know, mitigating those algorithmic biases that I'm referring to. We, we might have to do a round two on on this at some point because there are <laughs> it's, loads, a, it's a pretty loaded thing, isn't it? There are there <laughs> are a lot of a, a lot of avenues we could we could go down, but I, I really wanted to I really wanted to kind of highlight and, and drill into the, the the prototype bias that we use that that, that can often fuel algorithms with with in things like a, a hiring process. So we have this idea of okay these and, and use the the Amazon example there really really well, which is these are the characteristics of our top performers so we're going to base our, our hiring decisions based on them and and what we get there is that conflation of correlation with causation right J just because just because this group has these characteristics doesn't mean these characteristics make them successful in a role and there's a there's a book i um i i often reference that's got a, a slightly slightly provocative title but but a good one it's like why do so many incompetent men become leaders and and what to do about it by tomas uh camero Premusic. And he, he, through all, all the research he's done, he points to the fact that men are often hired because they're extroverted, because they're kind of self-promoting in a kind of mildly narcissistic way. But 
because we we see those as the traits of leadership men, men who t- typically demonstrate them um are are preferenced in a, a preferenced in a recruitment process whereas the actual traits correlated with effective leadership are higher emotional intelligence um and and diligence and a greater degree of care and and that, and that actually correlates with more effective leadership over the long term so so again we 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 have some evidence of the traits that make effective leadership, but we're making decisions based on who we, how we've chosen leaders in the past, and and kind of locking that into an algorithm is 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 is, is dangerous. It is, and it's 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 a very convoluted problem um, in itself, right? How do you know what good looks like in an organization? How do you determine what your ideal candidate is? Uh, how do you even put that down in words? It's very, very tricky. It's very multi-layered. And, you know, you can analyze your, your, your data, but you need to also look and understand, okay, what, what, who have been the top performers? But then actually, it's much deeper than that. You know, what are those traits that you've seen? And it's not, it's not anything related to protected characteristics at all. It will be, you know, that emotional intelligence you're referring to. It could be certain skill sets that you have. Um, and making sure that that becomes part of, you know, your requirements and your job description. So I've seen so many organizations write down eight to, to 10 bullet points of everything they need. But actually, how many of those are essential, right? Are you screening people out as a result of that? And therefore, when you're putting it into algorithms, the people who've said the right words or put the right terminology get filtered in. It's, it's you know, how much buzzwords can you put in, right? Um, and it shouldn't be a race against that. It should be a race against how do you find potential? It really is comes down to you're trying to find the diamonds in, in, you know, in the rough. You're trying to find who has potential to scale, who has potential to you know, be the top leaders. Uh, but we have to make sure that we're not relying on algorithms or data that's skewed or historical data that's skewed because the output you're going to get is just as skewed, if not more. And therefore, we have to make sure we break that, that cycle now. If we don't break that cycle now, it's just going to get worse. Um, and that's why I think it's one of the biggest threats that's, that's out there today. Um, we need to make sure that we're looking at the data that we're using the algorithms that we're building, the outputs that are coming out of these algorithms. We need to be auditing. There needs to be frameworks in place. Um, and I know there's always a lag between legal and actual technology, and that's another debate on its own. But there should be, I guess, accountability, responsibility of organizations that are also building these to make sure that we're trying to do as much as we can to give everyone a, a, a fairer chance. Otherwise, it would be very, very tricky. That existential risk is really is is really real. Like actually, as a as a as a civilization, um, Will McCaskill, um, who is sort of famous for his work in the effective altruism movement, um, his recent book "What We Owe the Future" talk, talks about different types of existential risk we face, and and one of them he talks about is is kind of value values locking. 
and if we only have to look at the evolution of of kind of culture and society to know that the values we 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 kind of aspire to or or hold as a, as the high watermark today and not the values of yesterday and and it's and it's it's quite hubristic and quite um you know to 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 think that that we've got it nailed right now right <laughs> so and and we, we couple that with the fact that so much is going into these black boxes, you know, to 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 the AIs driving, you know, Google search algorithm, which dictates what information people are presented with when they when they search for a particular query to to, to medical systems to um, systems of governance, and and if we're not careful about creating checks and balances around that, again, w- what are we locking in? Because garbage in, garbage out, right? Uh, and and to give that the, a very um, a very kind of pointed and short example of of you garbage in garbage out you might remember i think it was microsoft um uh unveiled a a the bot the bot yeah um uh, what was what, what was what was its name i i forget but they they released this they released a a machine learning an ai bot onto the internet and uh within about 5 minutes it was it was the most racist, sexist, <laughs> horrible, horrible entity you could imagine, because it was just it was exposed to that data set, right? There was this really interesting. There's a, a report um, by the CEI, um, I believe it's the Center of Data Ethics Innovation, and they did a review on the topic of algorithmic biases. They interviewed lots of organizations, including ourselves, and investigating what the causes of algorithmic biases are and what can we do today to try and, and tackle it. Um, and they looked at it from different p- sectors, including recruitment is one of those, those areas. And it does, you know, some of those things that came across is it's the data that we're, that we're using, uh, making sure that there's frameworks in, in place. So it's definitely something worth having a, a look at, um, including, uh, you know, even our website, we've got just an intro into the world of algorithmic biases, just to make sure that, because mm-hmm. there's lots of misconceptions even around that. You know, we talk about myths, uh, algorithmic biases, there's a whole world of myths about that. But there is all, there's always something that we can do to try and, it's not like, let's shove this problem until later. There's lots of things that we can do individually, you know, making sure that you know, we're not just putting more noise in, into, into data, for example, and how do we uh, tackle that? So. We need to make sure that we're we're addressing this from a it's it's a societal thing. No one person is going to be able to unlock this. It it needs to be a team effort to try and make sure that we're coming together um, to try and short make sure that algorithms that we use today and tomorrow are are as kind of fair as as possible. So I definitely recommend looking at the I guess the the review of algorithmic biases because that's a a good way to to, to start or you know, look at our website as well. Of course, there's, there's intros on that, but it's, it's one of the biggest challenges to date. Great. I think we've covered a lot of ground in this, in this conversation. And I've certainly learned a lot. Um, algorithmic biases is definitely not my, my speciality. So thank you so much for sharing. I think I'd love to get us to try and help, help the audience um, a little bit with what they can take away. If there was one thing you wanted to, to leave them with one thing that they, they could do differently for themselves or their organization? Let's ask all of us, but what might it be if you had to just give one thing? I know that's a really hard, hard question. I would say continue having conversations. I, it's very easy for us to kind of, kind of put it aside and think, you know, I'll come to this later or, 
But I think we need to keep having conversations with diverse people with different opinions, different thoughts to have that sense of awareness. And that means, you know, educating ourselves and being ready to have these uncomfortable conversations. Um, but it's fundamental uh, to making sure that we are moving the dial in the right direction uh, and making sure that we collectively as a team, talking about diversity and inclusion, collectively are moving the dial. Um, because to be honest, everyone deserves a chance. There's so many diamonds in the rough. Uh, everyone has the potential to be you know, a great leader, a great team member, a great individual. So why can't we all just do it together? Yeah, I love it. I would have said conversations as well, so I'm going to have to think of another one. Um, Phil, <laughs> I'll pass on to Phil while I while I get my brain working. For me, I I, I love the I love this concept of of uh, encouraging people to embrace the friction as a feature, not a bug, when it comes to when it comes to mitigating bias. So it requires a little more work. It requires a little more space to to challenge the way we've always done things to 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 stop and think and and to get that diversity of of perspectives um and very often the the resistance we hear or see from certain organizations particularly in in things like the tech space where they were you know there's a there's a there's an emphasis that there's an expediency bias at play uh, towards acting with speed uh, is that oh no we, we don't have time for this we, we'll, we'll fall behind um and and actually yeah seeing the seeing the process of slowing down as as good for people as good for decisions as as good for the organization um as a, as a as the feature it rightly is and and not a and not a downside um uh, so so that would be that would and and to build that in to to decision making to build that into systems and processes and actually create space um for for that within within teams within 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 processes that would be my 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 ask of organizations if i had to ask one thing i think my one thing now is going to be to think beyond people so, so often when we go into organisations, we're asked to run training to help individuals with their bias. And yes, that is part of it. But as you've talked about algorithms, but also broader systems enable bias or don't. So to change something at scale, if you have a large organisation and you might need to train thousands and thousands of people, it's challenging, it takes time, it's important. But also we can make really simple changes in our process. So we've been talking recruitment. Let's just mandate that we have to put all job ads through a gender decoder tool so that we know whether we're using gender bias language in our job ads. Like really simple change that we can make instantly and it and it enables us to make change quickly and at scale. So yeah, thinking beyond individuals, it's not all individuals' responsibility. We can also look at, look at our systems and look at what change we can make there. Can I cheat and just add one more onto that? <laughs> so I was going to say, on top of that, I would also measure your data to make sure you understand the impact these interventions are having. Because if we don't track those changes, it's very hard to know what's worked and what's not. And you want to be able to know that impact. So tracking your data across uh, the pipeline and being able to quantify as much as possible will, will make sure that you've got a, a very good feedback mechanism 
to improve as well. I'm going to end with one more, and this is uh, this is the theme. Oh, this, is the, this is the theme of one more, but it's to not think of it as the one because th- we're all struggling with the one thing, right? Because we, we we spend our we spend our days working on this when we know it's we, we we know it's by no means one thing. There is no silver bullet for 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 uh, for mitigating bias or or the work of diversity, equity, inclusion in organisations, and 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 I would encourage organisations to think in those terms too. So if they're like, oh, we'll just do this training, well no that 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 that's a part of it but but we've got to look at mindset we've got to look at behaviors we've got to look at culture we've got to look at systems and technology so so to to take to step back and take a whole systems approach to to the to the challenge would be my would be my takeaway what what we'll, we'll, unless kerry's got got another one to add for me. one little kerry go for it <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we might um Reham, thank you so much this has been this has been such a great conversation and and i think we can i think we can very very easily do a round two at some point as well but we'd just like to end as we usually do with a few getting to know you questions so um if, if you don't mind what what do you what do you what do you like to explore what do you obsess about on evenings and weekends when you when you're not thinking about bias oh what weekends and evenings <laughs> <laughs> um I, I to be honest, I am obsessed about fairness. I really am. It's because I've just seen, you know, so much in in the world. I've seen so much kind of injustice, unfairness, and trying to make sure that we try to be as fair as possible is something that it's one of my I guess core values that I have in life. It's it's my kind of foundational thing that keeps me going, gives me that drive. And it doesn't feel like a a job or a work or or anything like that it just feels like this is the right thing we should be doing and so I do spend a lot of my time thinking how do I how do I how do I build things that are much more fair how do I build things how do I give people a chance how do I you know that is something I spend a lot of my my time on and it's just purely because I love doing it it's and I think that there's so much good in the world that if we can power we could have if we can untap that the potential that we can have is just unmeasurable, to be honest. So I do spend, I am a bit of a workaholic as well. I'll add that bit in. <laughs> when you're passionate about what you do, it doesn't It doesn't, doesn't it doesn't. Like it feels like, you know, it is part of who I am. And it it's an extension of myself. Um, and, and, you know, if I can, if I can make the world a better place by doing that, then then I've, I've kind of ticked my purpose. I love it. And that's for you. What about any other organizations that you admire for the good they're doing in the Ooh, world? Anyone come to mind? Uh, I think there's lots of organizations doing lots of different things that are that are great. Um, so, you know, Airbnb and the, the kind of advancements in the terms of belonging, for example. Uh, Nike in terms of shining a light on you know, diverse people, for example. Uh, Microsoft and being able to you know, use technology to empower people. Every every single organization has something great that they're doing. Um, and it sounds like a very political answer that, but I really do believe that, that every single organization has one thing or multiple things that they're doing that is moving that needle. Um, and if we can get them doing more than one thing, Right, you said, you know, one more thing. If we can get them all doing one more thing and one more thing, then I think we're all we're all going to succeed. Um, so yeah, 
I love that positive I'm really naive. Really like incremental approach to change. <laughs> but I really do believe no, that no, everyone, no. everyone can do good. And, you know, if we can untap that, then the world, we can unleash potential. It's as simple as that. I, I love that too, because so often it's easy to think of the examples of organizations that are explicitly doing, you know, um, kind of things for social purpose. But actually, if you're making a great piece of technology and doing that in an ethical way, and that enables people to go ahead and do 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 their life's work, that's a that's a that's a beautiful thing too. So I I, I love that I love that frame on it. Um, final question, um, and and uh, this 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 one this one this one's a bit of a toughie. So <laughs> we'll see where it goes. But what's one one thing you've changed your mind about recently? No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. You probably know what the answer is gonna be, so <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna make it very, very simple. Coffee. <laughs> um, so let let me expand. Um, so I I drink tea. I I I purple teas is my go-to thing. Mint teas I can have over and over again. Uh, never used to drink coffee. Uh, we were just having a discussion around coffees, and I I. Always found the taste very, very bitter for me. Stay strong. Um, and I always feel like I need to add heaps and heaps of sugar into, into coffee. And so I clearly, we've just had a discussion around coffee just before this call. So clearly I need to go and try coffee again. So you've made a strong case, Phil, around coffee. I'll, I'll drop you an email after to let you know if my mind has definitely changed. But it's been swayed in that direction. So I need to give coffee a go. I'll send you. I'll send you a link to my go-to coffee guy, um, and he's a he's a he's a fellow Brit guy, guy called James Hoffman. And he said the other day, it's like yeah. people tend to need sugar. Add sugar if you're adding sugar, it's because your coffee's it's because you probably your coffee's bad. Um, like a good coffee yeah. can be sweet and not bitter and all the rest of it. So I'm 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 glad there's a potential convert in the works there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's a conversion there. So I need to you need to send me those links, and I need to invest a lot of money into some coffee. Clearly, that's right. Um, it's, it's an expensive <laughs> rabbit hole if it. you want to go down it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've I've got into the expensive rabbit hole of tea. I literally mm. um went to a trip to Amsterdam, and they had these diffusers I brought, which were. Less than, I think it was like five pounds for a diffuser. And I came home and I was like, okay, diffuser, I need tea. So I, instead of just buying, you know, one loose tea leaf of like mint, I went down a rabbit hole of buying every single flavor of tea. I've got drawers of different tea combinations now. And I, it's become a bit like an, a bit of an obsession. Talk about your first point. It's become an obsession. Just. You know, I've got minty, peppermint tea, vanilla tea, chai tea, you name it. I, I've, when I've got visitors coming over to visit, I, and they say they want tea, I open a drawer now and go, which one do you want? <laughs> Love it. I may have come across as a bit of a co coffee absolutist, but as, as Kerry knows, I, I do. We do have probably have about twelve types of tea at my house as well. So I, I think I there think more, more of a hot, hot hot drinks enthusiast. So that's what, one more thing collectively. I think this room has in common. We have a, a collective collective bias towards uh, <laughs> towards tea. Um, so tea, love it. <laughs> that's I love right, how yeah. you linked that back to bias, Phil. <laughs> that is, that is podcast extraordinaire at work. <laughs> Any parting thoughts or, or asks of the audience before we close the conversation out? Hey, just thank you for, for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's such an important discussion point. And, you know, I, if we've, we've changed people's minds to have these conversations and brought more awareness, we're on the right track. 
Well, thank you so much. It's like I say, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm sure we'll find time for a round two uh, um, at some point as well. We will uh, we will pop we will pop show notes uh, links to everything we discussed in the show notes. I think we dropped a fair few book recommendations between us in this uh, this conversation today. So, uh, thank yeah. you so thank you so much, and and thank you all for listening. This has been the Leaders for Good podcast. If you found this episode useful, the best way to support us and spread the message is by telling a friend or a colleague. You can also give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Leaders for Good and how you can start making positive change, head on over to leadersforgood.org and join our free community.